This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So remember your high school science class? Maybe you had a textbook that sounded something like this. Remember that a water molecule is polar with a partial negative charge on the oxygen atom and partial positive charges on the hydrogen. This is Tyler DeWitt. So, you know, good luck teaching that to 13-year-olds. Before Tyler got his PhD, he taught high school chemistry and biology. And one day, he realized that he just wasn't getting through to his students. I'm so excited to be describing and teaching my favorite topic at all of biology, which is viruses and bacteria. And I look out at the, all these students that I'm teaching and they just have completely blank faces, right? It's like the joy that I brought to this subject myself. You know, they're like, where is this coming from? Because we're not finding it in the textbook. And, you know, what you appreciate in this subject is completely not our experience right now. So you had a student, what, like raise your hand and say, this is just boring. Yeah. I was like, you know, can somebody just kind of explain the general gist of what you read in the textbook last night? And the student raises her hand and she's like, yeah, I, I, I can tell you the gist. Um, it was boring. It made s- no sense whatsoever totally confusing. Uh, It sucked. And why should I care? It was great because, you know, it's that kind of honesty that you only get from young people. That sort of edgy teenage honesty can be a really good thing. And it was just sort of this wake up moment for me. I was like, wow, if your only experience with this is reading the textbook, I can understand why you'd feel that way about this. It's such a shame how many creative, critical thinking people relatively rote, dry science education turns off. You know, it's like, how many Nobel Prizes? How many cures to cancer? You know, how many solutions to our energy challenges are locked in the minds of people who will never go anywhere near the scientific fields because they were so intimidated or turned off when they were in formal education and they thought, God, you know, I could never do that. I could never be a scientist. You know, for most of modern history, humans have taken smaller humans, roughly between the ages of 6 and 17, and we've put them in these institutions to educate them. We call them schools. And that system is pretty much the same wherever you go, practically unchanged for 200 years. Kids sit in a room with a bunch of other kids, they listen to some information, they repeat it a few times, and then they go home. So today on the show, We're going to take a look at ideas about rethinking education, how we might want to change school, from the classroom to the technology available to the way we value teachers and the students they educate, and how all of this could transform education. But for Tyler DeWitt, rethinking education, especially science education, isn't actually all that complicated. It just takes some creativity. Students really struggle to see how any of what they're learning really applies to their lives, really how how science is more than a laundry list of memorized definitions and, and sort of nonsensical equations. So back when Tyler was teaching about his favorite biology topic, bacteria and viruses, and his students basically told him that it sucked, he decided to change his approach with a story. Now, the story that I start telling my kids, it starts out like a horror story. Here's Tyler DeWitt on the TED stage. Once upon a time, there's this happy little bacterium. Don't get too attached to him. Maybe he's floating around in your stomach or in some spoiled food somewhere. And all of a sudden, he starts to not feel so good. Maybe he ate something bad for lunch. 
And then things get really horrible as his skin rips apart and he sees a virus coming out from his insides. And then it gets horrible when he bursts open and an army of viruses floods out from his insides. If you see this and you're a bacterium, this is like your worst nightmare. But if you're a virus and you see this, you cross those little legs of yours and you think, we rock. Because it took a lot of crafty work to infect this bacterium. Here's what had to happen. A virus grabbed onto a bacterium and it slipped its DNA into it. The next thing is that virus DNA made stuff that chopped up the bacteria DNA. And now that we've gotten rid of the bacteria DNA, the virus DNA takes control of the cell and it tells it to start making more viruses. So when my students were first learning this, why did they hate it so much? Well, I can guarantee you that their textbooks didn't have horror stories. You know, in the communication of science, there is this obsession with seriousness. It kills me. I'm not kidding. I used to work for an educational publisher, and as a writer, I was always told never to use stories or fun, engaging language because then my work might not be viewed as serious and scientific, right? I mean, because God forbid somebody have fun when they're learning science. I mean, did you face any challenges from people who were like, well, that's just wrong. That's just wrong science. You can't, you can't turn bacteria and, vir and, a, and a virus into these characters without explaining the this and that and the exceptions and um, the anomalies, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think that's one of the biggest issues with science education and with trying to present science in an engaging way, particularly for young people. Science can be a highly technical discipline. And I think practitioners of that discipline will often argue, oh, you could never say this because that's dumbing it down. You know, that's ignoring an exception. And so there's always this tension between presenting something in an engaging way and then this sort of other side of, oh, no, you, you couldn't possibly say that because it's not completely correct. And that really frustrates me because in science... There is no perfectly correct explanation for anything. At every level of scientific information, we're presenting only part of the story. And we need to understand that we need to present what is relevant and what is accessible for each level of education appropriately. So you, how did that change the way you talked about science? Yeah, so... I realized that relying on textbooks to convey the information just wasn't going to cut it. And so what good teachers do is they look at all of this very highly formalized information, all these resources, and a lot of what they do is translate it into this vernacular so that young people can, one, get excited about it, two, understand it, and three, see how to apply it in, in a broader sort of cognitive sense. And then they have to teach the students how to sort of package it back up and present it maybe on state or national assessments, again, in the sort of highly formalized, jargon-filled, very dispassionate kind of way. So Tyler took those ideas to YouTube, where he started to make and upload videos all about different kinds of subjects in science. Where I started teaching all this information, not from a textbook, but in a way that students could understand. You can remember this because cats have paws, and a cation is positive. Using simple language. We could have a mole of donuts, which would be 602 hexillion donuts. Using fun analogies. A lot of people get confused by isotopes, so I want to describe them by starting out with an analogy to cars, okay? And originally it was just for my students, and then students from around the world started watching. I'm often so disappointed when people think that I'm advocating a dumbing down of science. That's not true at all. I'm currently a PhD student at MIT, and I absolutely 
understand the importance of detailed, specific scientific communication between experts. But not when we're trying to teach 13-year-olds. And I wish that the change could come from the institutions at the top that are perpetuating these problems. And I beg them, I beseech them, to just stop it. But I think that's unlikely. So we are so lucky that we have resources where we can circumvent these institutions from the bottom up. There's a growing number of online resources that are dedicated to just explaining science in simple, understandable ways. There's still so much work left to be done, though. And if you're involved with science in any way, I urge you to join me. Pick up a camera, start to write a blog, whatever. But leave out the seriousness, leave out the jargon. Make me laugh, make me care. How should you start? Why don't you say, listen, let me tell you a story. I mean, that kind of engagement requires a certain level of charisma and creativity by the, by the science teacher. It, I, I mean, I think it does. I also don't think that all science teachers need to be performers, that they need to be amazingly charismatic, right? I think there are many ways to make science engaging, but it does require that they look beyond just the facts and think more about what the overall purpose of education is and sort of what this broader narrative is. You know, it seems to me that, that the underlying idea here isn't, isn't necessarily about just about science. It, it really is about conveying passion for something that is filled with wonder. Oh, very much so. There is amazing wonder to be found in, in every academic subject. I obviously wanted a science because I think it's amazingly cool how we're able to investigate the wonders of the universe. And so we have this field that's, that's all, all about just asking and answering these, these amazing questions. And rarely are we able to convey that excitement and wonder in, in traditional science education. Science educator Tyler DeWitt he hosts a YouTube channel geared toward helping high school and college students with chemistry. It's called Science with Tyler DeWitt. By the way, since he gave this talk, Tyler did earn his PhD in microbiology from MIT. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Rethinking School. In a moment, what do Finland, Vietnam, and Canada all have in common? Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour. From NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to stamps.com. Use stamps.com to automatically calculate and print the correct amount of postage for every letter or package you send. You'll have all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right at your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer. Sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer, a four-week trial plus postage, and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter NPR. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Thanks also to Goldman Sachs. Get insights from some of the world's leading thinkers on markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. You'll hear discussions on topics with far-reaching implications like climate change, autonomous driving, and the future of China's economic growth, plus much more. That's Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play, and at gs.com slash podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about changing school, about how we can rethink education, and even how different countries might be doing it better. 
I've been in schools in over 60 countries and seen a lot of variation in the way in which students learn, teachers teach, and schools operate. This is Andreas Schleicher. Yes, my name is Andreas Schleicher, and I'm running OECD's Global Education Comparisons at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Which means it's his job to evaluate schools around the world. You know, there's still lots of walls between education systems. Education is still a very inward-looking national business. So back in the 1990s, Andreas started to compare the way countries allocate resources for schools. And then he designed a test that would measure the skills and knowledge of 15-year-olds, 15-year-olds from Albania to Vietnam. And he called it the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA. Well, the PISA test is an international comparative assessment where we look at what students know, but also what they can do with what they know. I think that's really what differentiates it from most traditional school tests, you know, where we test specific content knowledge. And in PISA, we were less interested in looking at whether students can reproduce what they've learned and are more interested in whether they can extrapolate from what they know and creatively use their knowledge in novel situations because that's what the modern world really rewards people to do. The modern world no longer rewards you just for what you know. Now, Google knows everything. The modern world rewards people for what they can do with what they know. So we try to build our assessment around this, putting a high emphasis on creativity, critical thinking, and the capacity of students to actually also understand the foundations of disciplines. Here's Andreas Schleicher on the TED stage. Look at how the world looked in the 1960s in terms of the proportion of people who had completed high school. You can see the United States ahead of everyone else. And much of the economic success of the United States draws on its long-standing advantage as the first mover in education. But in the 1970s, some countries caught up. In the 1980s, the global expansion of the talent pool continued. And the world didn't stop in the 1990s. So in the 60s, the US was first in the 90s, it was 13th. And not because standards had fallen, but because they had risen so much faster elsewhere. So this tells us that in a global economy, it is no longer national improvement that's the benchmark for success, but the best performing education systems internationally. Like, what countries are doing it right? Like, which countries seem to to get it and educate their children better than others? Well, actually, you can find high-performing education systems in every corner of the world. You know, in Europe, you look to countries like Finland that are doing well. In North America, Canada is a great example of a high-performing and also highly equitable education system. And then you have in East Asia, Shanghai in China is sort of the poster child, Singapore, Japan. There are many different, very successful models of education in many different cultures, in many different contexts. A lot less is related to wealth. PISA showed us that the world is no longer divided between rich and well-educated nations and poor and badly educated ones. You know, Vietnam, you know, a poor country with an excellent education system. Uh, We've also seen that spending per student as such explains very little in quality of learning. It's much more to do with how we invest the resources, how we attract the most talented teachers into Hmm. the most challenging classrooms. And so I think that's been a a lot of inspiration. So how do other countries spend their money compared with with the U.S.? Well, um, I'll give you an example. You take China and the United States. Mm -hmm. They spend about a similar number of teachers for every 100 students. So the resources invested in education are pretty similar. But when you look at the class size, you can see the class sizes in the United States are comparatively small, and in China, they almost double. And you ask yourself, you know, two countries investing similar resources have very different features, and PISA shows you what's lying behind this. For example, in the United States, teachers, because they have small classes, have very little time for other things than teaching. If you are a teacher in Shanghai in China, you teach between 11 and 16 hours per week, about half what an American teacher teaches. But you spend a lot more time working with your fellow teachers to design lessons plans. You would observe somebody else's classroom. It's a completely different model of education. I think what PISA shows us is how do education systems differ and 
to what extent does it influence the results? Hmm. What about, I mean, is there any correlation between the diversity of a country and its outcomes? Well, um, there is. To some extent, diversity is uh, certainly a challenge. It could be social diversity, it could be income diversity, it could be cultural diversity. And it's probably also the most rapidly growing challenge in Europe, in uh, the United States. Uh, there's a long history in this. But at the very same time, we also see that some countries are very good in moderating that kind of diversity. So I think your northern neighbor, Canada, is a good example. You go to Toronto, where about almost half of the students have an immigrant background, mm. and still we cannot see a performance lag between immigrant and non-immigrant students. So the system has become very, very successful in personalizing education in a way that the system is moderating inequality. In other countries, you know, unfortunately, the bitter truth is that education reinforces social disparities. We do see that as well. No? Okay, so so then what would be a better way for, for an American school to teach its students? I mean, would it be better for, like, how would they start to improve? And what, what would they do? Well, you know, I think the first thing is to just raise the level of expectation. You know, one of the things that we see in PISA is that many American students think they are doing fine when, in fact, the results are just so-so. We also see that, you know, the students' self-beliefs are important. Once we ask students, you know, what do you think makes you successful in mathematics? And we had the majority of American students saying, well, you know, that's all about talent. If I'm not a genius, I'm going to study in mathematics and I'm going to study something else. You ask that same question to a student in China or in Singapore, and nine out of ten students tell you, if I study really, really hard, I trust my teacher is going to help me and I'm going to be successful. So the belief in effort as a key to success is very important. The second dimension, I think, is the quality of teaching. You know, um, most high-performing countries are very careful in how they attract the most talented people into the teaching profession, how they offer them interesting careers. They really create a high-status teaching profession where teachers have a high degree of professional autonomy. They work in a collaborative culture, and they are there to frame good practice. I think that is a big part of the, of the equation that I think remains unsolved in the case of the United States. And of course, the question is, can what works in one context provide a model elsewhere? Of course, you can't copy and paste education systems wholesale, but these comparisons have identified a range of factors that high-performing systems share. Everybody agrees that education is important. No? Everybody says it. But the test of truth is how do you weigh that priority against other priority? How do countries pay their teachers relative to other high-skilled workers? Would you want your child to become a teacher rather than a lawyer? How do the media talk about schools and teachers? So those are the critical questions. And what we have learned from PISA is that in high-performing education systems, the leaders have convinced their citizens to make choices that value education, their future, more than consumption today. And you know what's interesting? I know you don't, won't believe it, but there are countries in which the most attractive place to be is not the shopping center, but the school. Those things really exist. So, I mean, I'm assuming if you were to build a high school, and I'm sure you've been asked before, I'm sure people have said, please, build our high school for us. You would say, number one, you've got to have really high-quality, well-trained teachers, and they've got to be treated well. Mm -hmm. And number two, uh, you've got to um, you know, focus on a problem-solving curriculum, not a, a curriculum simply based on teaching facts. Absolutely. I think this the latter is really, really important. You know, the world today rewards people to think out of the box, to solve unknown problems, to use technologies that have not been invented, to solve social problems that we don't know about yet. So I think the capacity of and willingness of students to grow, I think, is very, very important. And Science content knowledge evolves very rapidly, but your capacity to think like a scientist, to sort of understand the structural features of a discipline, to think like a philosopher, to think like a mathematician, those features are of enduring value. So I do think 
uh, we need to place more emphasis on this. And that demands a very different set of pedagogies and instructional practices. I think that's what we see in high-performing education systems. And I would put a high premium on this. You know, We have 21st century technology, but we need to do more to develop 21st century pedagogy. Andreas Schleicher, he heads the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. You can see his full talk at TED.com. So here's what a chemistry class at the Khan Lab School in Los Altos, California, sounds like. Don't you just kind of want to be in that class? I spend at least half an hour every day coding. So I do JavaScript, and now I'm just starting to learn Python. JavaScript and Python. (laughs) Pretty crazy, right? Anyway, the lab school opened up in 2014 as, well, an education laboratory, a kind of testing ground. Our astronaut suit is built for Europa. Where kids from different age groups collaborate. So the problems are that there is very, very cold there, plus there's uh, deadly radiation. And at the Khan Lab School, classes go year-round, and there are no grade levels. You know, they come in, there's a group time where, you know, you have kids as young as five, as old as 14, all, all together in a room. You know, they really feel like cousins. A lot of This time, is the school's founder, Sal Khan. They'll have their morning meeting, then they go into core skills time. There's a lot of peer-to-peer interaction going on at that period. But once you get to lunch and the whole afternoon, it's, it's mainly project-based learning, students working in kind of these collaborative, cross-age uh, environment. And at the heart of Sal Khan's approach, flipping the classroom so that students watch online lectures at home but spend a lot more time working with teachers and other students in class. It makes the classroom take advantage of the human beings that are there. It makes it an active process. It allows the teacher to see in real time where the students actually are. And, and the idea of getting the information, well, it's, it's better when it's on your own time and pace and, and you can pause and repeat and watch exactly what you need. And this whole idea of flipping the classroom, it's something Sal kind of stumbled upon more than a decade ago when he started to post these free educational videos online, which he called Khan Academy. So in a traditional lecture model, I show up, I'm like, all right, I'm sitting here and it just happens to you and some of it might stick. While on-demand video, if when I click on a video, I'm only going to click, it, it's, it's kind of like asking a question. Hey, I am still confused about this. Give me another five-minute example or explain the, the concept a little bit better. And so when you are pulling information, you're naturally going to be more open to it. Khan Academy began sort of by accident in 2004. At the time, Sal was working at a hedge fund, and his 12-year-old cousin came to visit. And she was dispirited because she'd been placed in a slower math class. I asked her about it. Turns out she had trouble with unit conversion. You know, changing feet to meters or gallons to liters. I offered to to tutor her, convinced that she could understand unit conversion. And so we started working together over the phone. And eventually, she got it. And then I called up her school. I said, hey, you know, I think Nadia should retake that placement exam from last year. They said, who are you? I said, I'm her cousin. And and they let her. And that same Nadia that two months ago was being tagged and tracked as a remedial math student was now placed into the advanced math class. And then word gets around the family that free tutoring is going on. So one cousin becomes two, and then three, and then four, five, six, Once seven. Once it was 10 or 15 cousins, uh, the scheduling and logistics got a little bit more difficult. Sal would organize conference calls, and then he would email pictures of math problems back and forth. And eventually, someone suggested, hey, why don't you just post your lessons on YouTube? I actually wasn't that familiar with it at the time, and I said, no, no, that doesn't make any sense. YouTube is for cats playing piano. (laughs) It's not for Uh, serious mathematics. But we tried it anyway. Welcome to the presentation on adding and subtracting fractions. Let's get started. And I started telling my cousins, hey, I'm making videos on a lot of the common concepts and questions that y'all are asking me about. Why don't you watch them ahead of time? And when we get on the phone, we can dig a little bit deeper. And after about a month, I asked for feedback, and they famously said they like me better on YouTube than in person. (laughs) 
So this one-fourth right here, let's say it's this one-fourth of the pie, right? And we're going to add it to another one-fourth of the pie. Well, I think what they were saying is it, it was very valuable to have it on demand. They didn't have to feel embarrassed. They didn't have to feel like they were wasting my time. And so I, I kept going. It was public on YouTube. started to become clear that people who weren't my cousins were watching. Uh, that just kept growing. Even at this point, you know, I said, okay, maybe it's a good supplement. It's good for motivated students. It's good for maybe homeschoolers. But I didn't think it would be something that would somehow penetrate the classroom. Sal picks up the story from the TED stage. But then I started getting letters from teachers. And the teachers would write saying, we've used your videos to flip the classroom. You've given the lectures. So now what I do is I assign the lectures for homework. And what used to be homework, I now have the students doing in the classroom. And I want to I wanna pause here for a second because this is the unintuitive thing when you talk about technology in the classroom. They took a fundamentally dehumanizing experience, a bunch of 30 kids with their fingers on their lips, not allowed to interact with each other. A teacher, no matter how good, has to give this kind of one-size-fits-all lecture to 30 students, you know, blank faces, slightly antagonistic, and now it's a human experience. Now they're actually interacting with each other. So how does Khan Academy teach, let's say, algebra to a seventh grader differently than, than, than that seventh grader would learn it in a classroom in, in middle school? Well, one, we want to put practice first and, and, and practice at your, your level of development. So in a traditional school, it might be October, hey, we're all going to be doing exponents in seventh grade. Uh, what we would recommend is let students start at the beginning and then let them keep practicing at their own time and pace. And then the teacher can get information on where all their students are and intervene accordingly. Say, hey, those students are getting exponents just fine. Let them move on to logarithms, while these students are actually not even exponents. Some of these students are having trouble with their multiplication tables. Let's make sure they have that foundation well, because if they don't learn that, exponents are going to be near impossible. And so it allows the teacher to become more of a, a master conductor of, a, of an orchestra. And, you know, this has to be a little bit louder. This has to be a little bit more quiet. Uh, so, so that's what we generally advocate. In terms of the actual content materials, I think there's a lot of teachers out there, incredible teachers, who, who do a very good job of connecting material, uh, making it you know, make conceptual sense. Uh, I, I think textbooks do a, a pretty bad job mm. of, of that. Uh, it, it tends to fragment the knowledge, make it seem like a series of formulas. And so we're trying to do both of these things, allow classrooms to move to this more personalized, you could say competency-based world. And at the same time, allow the content to be delivered in a way that is much more natural for students, that feels much more conceptual, and, and, and also exposes the beauty in things. So could this approach, could flipping the classroom actually revolutionize teaching? In a minute, why Sal Khan believes the answer is yes. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals for free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash radiohour. Thanks also to Captera, a software comparison site. Captera believes it's time to power up your productivity with the right software for your business. On captera.com, you can find over 400 categories of business software to choose from with thousands of user reviews. And using Captera is absolutely free. Join the millions of people who use Captera every month. Visit Captera, that's C A P T E R R A. Dot com slash radio hour today. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about rethinking school. And before the break, we were hearing how Sal Khan turned an experiment with online videos 
into a teaching tool to flip the classroom. In more than 10 years since he launched Khan Academy, millions of people have watched the videos, all free and made available in more than three dozen different languages. Imagine what it does to a street kid in Calcutta who has to help his family during the day, and that's the reason why he or she can't go to school. Now they can spend two hours a day and remediate or, 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 or get up to speed and not feel embarrassed about what they do or, or don't know. Now imagine what happens where, you know, we talked about the peers teaching each other inside of a classroom, but this is all one system. There's no reason why you can't have that, that peer-to-peer tutoring beyond that one classroom. Imagine what happens if that student in Calcutta all of a sudden can tutor your son, or your son can tutor that kid in Calcutta. And I think what you'll see emerging is this notion of a global one-world classroom. And that's, that's essentially what we're, what we're trying to build. Could Khan Academy, I mean, could it, could it replace school for, or does it replace school for lots of children around the world who, who, who may not have access to traditional classrooms? In an ideal world, you have a physical school. Obviously, we, we created a physical school, so we, we think it's very, very important. But the reality is, is that many students, uh, you know, it could be in underserved areas, it could be in rural areas, uh, impoverished areas, there could be cultural barriers to going to school. Uh, you know, we've had some stories of uh, you know, young girls under in, you know, controlled by the Taliban. They're using Khan Academy as their, their outlet. Um, so, yes, we... we Ideally, you go to a classroom and, and we can help supercharge that classroom. But if you don't have access to a classroom, yes, we, we want to make it so that you could self-educate and prove what you know to the world and, and so that you can participate in society. I mean, I guess what, what you're essentially trying to do is to upend a, a, an outdated system. Yeah, around the world, we have essentially adopted what could be called a Prussian education system. And uh, it's referring to... 18th, 19th century Prussia, one of the first places to industrialize and also one of the first places to rightfully think about universal public education. And But when they did say, they said, well, we can't give everyone a private tutor like nobility used to get. If we if we want to make this economic, well, let's, this is the industrial revolution. How do we do anything at scale? Well, we batch things together. We move them down in an assembly line. We apply some processes to it. And so that's the model that Throughout the world, we have students are batched together initially by age around middle school, age and perceived ability. They, they move forward at a set pace. Uh, but now we have technology. We have notions of on-demand video. And so the opportunity, it, it, it no longer has to be this utopian thought, is let's give students explanations when they need it, if they need it. Uh, let's give them practice when and if they need it. And so our end isn't just to change things for the sake of changing things. Our, our end is we want a world where you have access to a you know, low-cost device. You can access Khan Academy, self-educate yourself, and, and plug in either to the formal academic system or, or, or get a job, become part of society. Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy and the Khan Lab School. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. So when it comes to rethinking education, sure, more inspired curricula could help. And of course, so could better technology. And of course, flipping the classroom structure could be transformational. But what about when school is the only place where a kid gets a meal or warmth during the wintertime? Because for a lot of kids, kids whose daily lives are surrounded by violence and poverty, just getting through the front door is already a victory. And so teachers and principals have to be more than just educators. And this is what Linda Clyatt Wayman discovered when she became principal of an inner city Philadelphia high school. I would get on the PE system every morning and every afternoon before my students went home. I would end and I begin every message the same way. If nobody didn't tell you they loved you today, you remember I do, and I always will. Linda grew up in North Philadelphia, where she became a high school principal in 2003. And on her very first day at a particularly challenging high school, within the first few minutes of her arrival, she broke up a fight in the hallway and called for a school-wide meeting. So I brought everybody into the auditorium to introduce myself. And it was a mayhem in the auditorium. And I'm standing on stage, and I'm saying to the students, 
listen, 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 let me introduce myself. And the whole time I was doing that, this one young lady was trying to tell me something. And she kept screaming, Miss! Miss! Why do you keep calling this a school? And I said to her, because it is a school. And in a much softer, nicer voice, she said, oh, miss, oh, miss, this is not a school. And I just stood there on the stage and I stared out into the audience. And I was watching the kids still not settled in the auditorium. And I kept saying to myself over and over again in my mind, this is not a school. This is not a school. And I said, oh, my God. How in the world could you expect students to come and really embrace learning when they didn't even see the school as a school? And so from that day on, I made a pledge to myself that as long as I was going to stay in education and as long as I was going to serve kids in poverty, to always make the school seem like a school. Over the next several years, Linda built a reputation as the kind of leader that could turn around struggling schools. And then in 2012, she became principal of Strawberry Mansion High School, also in Philadelphia. And it was a school that was notorious for drugs, weapons, and assaults. And on her first day there, she couldn't help but remember those words from that young student. Shortly as I approached the door of my new school, and attempted to enter, I found the door locked with chains. Linda picks up the story from the TED stage. The halls were dim and dark from poor lighting, and there were tons of piles of broken old furniture and desks in the classrooms. The students were just scared, scared to sit in rows in fear that something would happen, scared from all the fighting and all the bullying. For far too many schools for kids who live in poverty, their schools are really not schools at all. But this can change. Anybody who's ever worked with me will tell you, I am known for my slogans. (laughs) So today, I am going to use three that have been paramount in our quest for change. My first slogan is, If you're going to lead, lead. So I assembled a top-notch leadership team, and together we tackled the small things, like resetting every single locker combination by hand so that every student could have a secure locker. We decorated every bulletin board in that building with bright, colorful, and positive messages. And of course, we tackled the big stuff. We rebuilt the entire school day schedule from scratch to add a variety of start and end times, remediation, honors courses, and counseling all during the school day. We created then a deployment plan that specified where every single support person and police officer would be every minute of the day. And our best invention ever, we devised a school-wide discipline program titled Non-Negotiables. It was a behavior system designed to promote positive behavior at all times. The results? Strawberry Mansion was removed from the persistently dangerous list our first year after being... after being on the persistently dangerous list for five consecutive years. Leaders make the impossible possible. That's just incredible. I mean, how how did the staff and and the teachers react to all all of these changes? I mean, were they like, finally, someone's making a difference, or were they uh, they kind of skeptical? Well, the teachers were very interesting. You could just tell that I was going to have an uphill battle trying to get the teachers to understand that this was a situation where we had to take hold of Because everyone talked about excuses. Everybody talked about the kids are bad, they don't want to learn, the parents don't care, the community don't care. So it was all an excuse. And that's when I said to them, so what? 
So what now what? Yeah. So now what are we going to do? If if you can't take on this extra responsibility of motivating and encouraging kids to come to school and do their best, then this is the wrong environment for you. So when you use that slogan, so what, now what? I mean, I guess you were, you were basically saying to them, this is what has to happen. Like, I, I expect everybody to to do this. Yes. And I use that same slogan with my students. So what? Now what? When they come to me and tell me about all of their challenges, and they have a lot. Some of them are dealing with homelessness. Some of them have a problem with eating a full meal every night. Some of them live in houses where there are several families living together, where they have to take care of the adults in the house. And when they come to me with all of those problems, I say the same thing to them. So what? Now what? Now, listen, there are many times that I would sit and cry with them, Mm. hug them while they're crying. But I also realize I can't change all of their individual situations. Yeah. And I cannot allow their situations to steal their future. I would tell my students, you've been dealt a terrible hand. Yes, you have a terrible hand. And I can't change that. I cannot change your childhood. But if you listen to me, I can change your adulthood. It's interesting because we often think that the power resides with teachers or the school administrators or the district or the federal government. And you're essentially saying, yes, that may be true, but but actually I'm going to empower you, student, you child, to take some ownership and agency in your own future. And and maybe all these other things are broken, but, but you have actual power to control this thing. And that's what I tell them. The system is exactly broken, guys. But there are a lot of us who've made it even though the system is broken. Hmm. And so I expect you to make it even though the system is broken. And the only person that is really in charge of you making it fully is yourself. And people ask me all the time, well, Ms. Wayman, can the kids actually make it without parental involvement? I say, of course, because they have to. Hmm. What kids need is a caring adult on any level. What they need is someone to say to them, I expect this from you. And when kids understand that that caring adult truly loves them and will hold them accountable for their actions, they will always rise to that expectation, whether it's from a parent or a caring adult. Which brings us back to that other slogan Linda tells her students all the time. If nobody told you they loved you today, you remember I do. And I always will. If someone asks me my real secret for how I truly keep Strawberry Mansion moving forward, I would have to say that I love my students and I believe in their possibilities unconditionally. When I look at them, I can only see what they can become. And that is because I am one of them. I grew up poor in North Philadelphia too. I know what it feels like to wonder if there's ever going to be any way out of poverty. But because of my amazing mother, I I got the ability to dream despite the poverty that's around me. So if I'm going to push my students toward their dream and their purpose in life, I got to get to know who they are So I managed the lunchroom every day. (laughs) And while I'm there, I talk to them about deeply personal things. And when it's their birthday, I sing happy birthday, even though I cannot sing at all. (laughs) I often ask them, why do you want me to sing when I cannot sing at all? (laughs) And they respond by saying, because we like feeling special. My reward for being non-negotiable in my rules and consequences is their earned respect. I insist on it. They are clear about my expectations for them 
And I repeat those expectations every day over the PA system. I remind them every day how education can truly change their lives. You know, as we've been hearing, there are lots of ideas about how to transform education, right? But none of that can really happen without students feeling like they belong, without, without a feeling of security, without, without love. Exactly. Believe it or not, a majority of my students do not even live with a mother or a father. A lot of these students just don't feel loved. And that is a reason why I found it to be very, very important for me to tell them every day, if nobody did not love you, I do. And I remember I got a letter from one of my students who went to prison and a one who was giving me a college graduation invitation on the same day wow. that ended the same way. Miss Wayman, if nobody didn't tell you, I loved you today. You remember I do. And I always will. So I know it's important. Hmm. I know it's important how, how every child needs to be loved. And every child needs to hear from someone, I love you. I, I don't know any other way to get through to them hmm. or to make it possible in their eyes to do better for themselves without me telling them that I love them and I believe in them. I've never found another way to do it. That's Linda Clyatt Wayman. She recently left her post as principal of Strawberry Mansion High School. She's working on starting an organization that will support and coach underserved Philadelphia students from high school through college. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Now a good friend of mine sat with me and he cried. He told me a story I know you had lied. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Rethinking Education this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin and Ramtin Arablui. Our intern is Tony Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Gregory Warner here to tell you about NPR's new international podcast. It's called Rough Translation. Each week, we're going to take you to a different country to hear a story that reflects back on something that we are talking about here in the United States. Maybe get a perspective shift. Travel with us. Rough Translation is on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.